Plundergrounds 148, a conversation with Colin Spike Pitt Green about sorcerers and sellswords. Plundergrounds, Plundergrounds, welcome back to a brand new show. Ray's gonna take you where you didn't know you wanted to go. Fantasy and dungeon delve, science fiction, watch yourselves. Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoy this conversation that I had with Colin Green of the Spike Pit podcast. He and I could talk for hours, and indeed, we did talk for almost two hours. Uh, you're getting an hour of it here, uh, or almost an hour of it, as we talk about my hack of lasers and feelings called Sorcerers and Cell Swords. I wanted to apologize up front for my mic issues. I had it positioned incorrectly, and you're going to get lots of plosives. And uh, so, apologies for the thudding in your ears whenever I say a P word, but uh, I think I've hopefully got that figured out now and won't be doing that in the future. Uh, I will probably air the second half of this conversation at some point too. Uh, We just kind of uh, quote unquote off the mic kept rambling about various things like HG Wells War of the Worlds and cancel culture and all kinds of stuff. So I'm not sure you know, I found it entertaining. I'm not sure how entertaining you'll find it. I'll probably release it as an extra. And so that's something to look forward to. But in the meantime, uh, Colin was kind enough to come on my show and talk with me about one of my games and uh, a game that he is running for his Patreons over on the uh, Spike Pit Patreon page or the Pit Crew, as he likes to call them. And uh, without further ado, here is the conversation that we had. Well, hello, Colin. Good afternoon. Hi, Ray. How you doing? I hear that you're running a game of Sorcerers and Swords for the Pit Crew. Actually, I uh, should probably foreground that and mention that the Pit Crew are the members of your Patreon, and your Patreon supports your podcast, which is Spike Pit, uh, which has been going now for, what, uh, two and a half years, three years, something like that? Well, it's actually just past two years now, Ray. Literally July two years ago. Right. I know you were in before I was, and I'm not quite on two years. So um, I just kind of got this sense that you've been at it forever. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like it sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's uh, it's sometimes it's hard to remember who you were when you started the podcast. Like, And I mean that in a, a sort of psychological way. Like, I feel like I was a different person then. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's made quite a big difference, and it's surprising how you forget what you've talked about as well. That's the thing I struggle with. Yeah, exactly. Podcasts are very ephemeral, but we'll hope this one is uh, you know stands the test of time and that people return to it again and again. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, and talking of returning again and again, I've re-listened to your episode eight and ten, Ray, where you talked about lasers and feelings. Right. Uh, Because that was your that was your on ramp, really, wasn't it, for this this game? Yes. Yeah. And and I actually I sort of wanted to foreground that and say that whatever I say about my game today, if if it's if I call it my game or the things I did, um, all credit to John Harper, because this is really just me tweaking his lasers and feelings to my taste. Um, and I don't know when Lasers and Feelings was first released, but I started uh Sorcerers and Cell Swords in twenty 14 or 2015. So it was shortly after he had put it out. Um, Brilliant little design and um, a great chassis on which to build. Yeah, definitely. One of my sort of favorite of the the lighter games, should we say, the, the kind of minimal RPGs. It is absolutely in that camp of pick up and play. You can explain it in five minutes. You can run it in two hours if you're fairly aggressive with it. Um, And it doesn't require, it really doesn't even require a lot of background in playing role-playing games or anything uh, for people to understand what you're doing. So for for Sorcerers and Cell Swords, Ray, what would be your, your elevator pitch? Well, uh, I like to keep it really simple. The introductory sentence in Sorcerers and Cell Swords is, you are a company of adventures in a land of weird fantasy. Mm-hmm. And I, maybe the second sentence is, is as important as the first. And I say something like, think wizards or Thundar the Barbarian, just to give a couple mm-hmm. reference points. And that's two of many 
it is me hacking lasers and feelings to be sword and sorcery. And what I think of as true sword and sorcery, and I, I don't mean that in a one true wayism kind of thing, but sword and sorcery in the sixties and seventies had a different feel to it. Um, as opposed to post D and D fantasy. Mm-hmm. And uh, I really wanted to kind of model that more closely. I wanted to have a system that you could play virtually anything and that would model out some of the crazy, awesome fantasy of 1980s cartoons and early sword and sorcery fiction that kind of mixes genres. And, uh, you know, there's no holds barred in a way. Flights of fancy. And this, this I think, is the... Re- one of the main reasons for me selecting this game to be my first kind of online uh, session for the patrons. Mm -hmm. I think it probably appeals to a broad audience. It's easy to get on board and sort of that no holds barred aspect is quite attractive to me for sure. Yep. I think so. You know, it's, it's actually really accessible too in a lot of ways because it's so short um, it's actually gone through a couple translations. So um, I think it's in Polish. Uh, I think it's in French and it might be in, uh, it might be in Portuguese or Spanish. I think what it is, is just, it's so short that uh, people who are attracted to it can have a go at translating it without devoting their life to it. Yeah. Yeah. Super manageable. What we should say is we're, we're talking about two sides of A4 and and one side of that is really your optional lexicon of kind of terms and flavors and a little bit of expanding out on the game. Yeah. The second side is completely optional. It's um, some flavor for people who it kind of helps fill in some terms Mm. and uh, doesn't really offer much in the way of advice. It's just more of a, uh, it more colors up the, the terms that are used on the front side of the page. And I often encourage people not to look at the back of the, or, or just not even give them the lexicon. If I want the game to be more inventive and kind of wildly interesting and surprising, I'll, I'll not set them up with that lexicon. I've had people at the table who have the lexicon, like refer to it uh, in game and say, oh, it says right here that I can do this. And I'm like, oh, does it? You know, like, I've forgotten what I've written. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I can understand that. We'll perhaps come on to that in a little bit. Is it worth at this point, Ray, to just go through the the the, the um the structure yeah the structure of the game and, and and how it works perhaps talk about c- creating an adventure say it is modeled on lasers and feelings that way so the the game starts with character creation it doesn't start after character creation um so the very first thing you do is create an adventure and uh, the system is based on rolling d6s and you roll a pool of them a small pool uh it goes from 1 to basically 1 to 3 Uh, dice. And those dice are going to be read based on a single number. Um, And so there are two poles. There's the the pole of the numbers that uh, that matches numbers that are rolled over your statistic, your single statistic. And then there's the pole that matches all the dice that are rolled under your single statistic. So when you choose your statistic, you're choosing it on a continuum between two poles. Now that sounds very scientific i guess and and abstract so let me just say it's 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 echoed in the name of the game um one pole is sorcery and the other is swords and um the sorcery into things is more about weird powers and ancient alien artifacts and intuition uh persuasion things that are harder to touch and tangible things right Mm -hmm. and the sword side of the equation is more about logic and precision and skill and um, calm, precise action and considered diplomacy, those kind of things. Mm -hmm. So when you make a roll, you kind of decide which camp it's in, you roll the dice and you read them based on, so if your number is a, there's no way to choose an actual median number, by the way, because there's no middle number on a D6 die. Um, Average is three and a half, right? Mm. So you either either pick a a two, three, four, or five as your number, and that leans you um, toward one thing or another. Oddly enough, on if you're imagining the continuum in the mind, uh, where you pick your number, it looks like it leans toward one pole. It actually leans toward the opposite because it leaves more room for rolling under or over, right? Yeah, and uh, it's based on what number. It, I find this aspect of the design really quite interesting. Firstly, for the the reason that you, you've mentioned that there isn't a, me, a median, mm-hmm. so you've always got a bit of a leaning, and 
the fact that you've got one number, but you've kind of got two stats with the one number, haven't you? Because of the way it works. You could easily break the game into two stats. Uh, it just wouldn't be as elegant, right? <laughs> yeah, but by having the one number, because it's it, it, if it affects two stats. Yeah, they're the inverse of each other, right? So yeah, it would be yeah. the same as like, uh, it would be the same as having what? Seven points to spend between two attributes. I suppose it is. I suppose it is, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it kind of is. Yeah. But right. So once you get your head around that, that is honestly one of the uh, training hurdles that you have to deal with in a group is to try to explain to them how the dice work. But really, that's a very quick, you know, once you've rolled the dice a few times and tested it out, um, you, you immediately get it. It's not too hard. It's just that. it's just got a really nice elegance that appeals to me. I feel like I'm getting mm-hmm. I feel like I'm getting extra game for for my. Well, but not, not my money, but <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not for your money. So, um, yeah, it's a lot of value for, for no output because it is a free game. We've not we've not said you've put this up there for free on your on your website, Ray, uh, rayotis.com. Mm-hmm. Yeah, although these days I, I really kind of point people to my itch.io page because that's, oh, okay. yeah, that's an easier storefront for a lot of people. Um, and, you know, if it gets updates, then you can then you'll get notified if there's an update there. Right. So that was the skill number. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you've got your style. You choose your style from a list of words. And, and my list of words on the sheet are dangerous, dauntless, feral, flashy, furtive, lofty, sexy, shrewd, spunky. Um, you can easily add words to that of your own uh, to kind of tweak to your own setting or the own flavors that you want. Uh, choose your calling, alchemist, alien, archer, artificer, assassin, barbarian, beastmaster, construct, cut purse, elementalist, knight, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, so there's mm-hmm. these different classes if you will um but uh i try not to be super like the 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 this trick to inventing new classes is not to be super basic like you don't want fighter or wizard on here you want like i have necromancer or elementalist not not wizard. yeah you you're picking you're picking words that do a bit of the lifting for you aren't you in terms of setting they're, they're interesting Right, because because the the magic is undefined, so you don't have a list of spells. So when you, when we get to that, we'll talk about that later. But you, uh, you when you invent sorceries, you need something to hang that on. And if you're just a wizard, it's kind of like you have to then make a big decision about what kind of wizard you're going to be or what kind of spells you're going to cast. But if you're a necromancer, you sort of know what kind of spells you're casting, right? Mm. Or what kind mm. of magic you have. Um, so then you choose a goal, and uh, this is a personal goal, like lead the company or to find a safe place or delve dark secrets. Um, and you put a name on your character and you're done, except that as a group, you pick two advantages and one problem. Um, so your group might be well provisioned uh, and stylish, and uh, the problem might be that you're hunted right uh by by a demon or you're indebted to uh, some sort of merchant fat cat or you're doomed or exiled and these are those are things really for the gm to play off of more than the characters although i would say i i i really like this inclusion it's only basically four lines in the rules and it gives you that chance to get the players talking together at the beginning get that little it's a little bit of an icebreaker i found i don't know about you ray but it is amazing to watch um there is a literal transition here between when they make their character they're kind of in their own head and everybody's playing separately at the table and the minute you ask you know as a company which advantages Mm -hmm. you have you can see kind of a spark and an engagement with each other that happens. They look up, you know, I talk about eyes up gaming a lot. They look up from their, from their sheet. They look at each other. um, They start to, you know, try out words out loud and laugh about them. You know, like what if we were flashy (laughs) kind of, and then you, you see an idea catch and everybody goes, yeah, that's it. That's what we are. And that's the first time. It's it's like the game itself performs that. And again, this is lasers and feelings. It performs that little magic for you of connecting the players socially, which makes makes it a great con game for that reason. Yeah, it's super it's super clever. I think it's super clever. Right. So then that's it for the uh, creation stuff. And and the next little section of the rules talks about the dice. Um, we've already talked a little bit about it, but basically the rules are when you do something risky, basically when the GM asks you to roll, you roll 1d6 always. So you always get one die. 
just to find out how it goes. Um, you roll another D6 if you're an expert uh, and you base that on your calling or your style. Um, and another D6 if you're prepared. And that's based on your setting something up in the fiction. So um, we'll get into some examples of that later. But basically, um, then you compare, it, you decide whether you're rolling sorcery or swords and you roll the dice and you compare. Um, if you've got, uh, it, you count the number of dice that are over, or in the case of sorcery, over your number, and in the case of swords, under your number. I like to think of that as like being more or less in control. So um, sorcery is, it comes from like a wild, dark place within you, um, and intuition mm-hmm. and all that. It's kind of not so controlled. So high numbers are kind of out of control, and low numbers are sort of tight and focused and in control. That's a nice way to remember it. Yeah, that hadn't occurred to me, but now you said it, that's going to stick. So mm-hmm. that's good. So at zero successes, things go horribly wrong. And uh, the overlord says how things get worse. That's a cute name for the GM. <laughs> <laughs> at one success, you barely manage it. Um, the overlord adds a complication, harm or cost. And you can recognize now we're into like PBTA land. Yeah. Um, powered by the apocalypse, right? Uh, yeah. At two dice, two success, you do it well. And at three success, you get a critical success, uh, which means you not only do it well, but you get some kind of extra bonus effect or... Uh, lasting result that that is above and beyond a normal success. And uh, the thing I like about this dice system, by the way, it, unlike PBTA, which uses two, di- two dice and you add them together and you maybe add some other numbers and then you compare them to this invi- uh, inviolate like taxonomy, right? That mm-hmm. zero to six is a fail. Seven to nine is a, a split result. Um, and a, a eight plus is a success. Um, this one doesn't require any other abstractions. You just basically count the number of dice over or above, over or below your number. Mm. And it, it's very, um, you're not doing math or anything like that. You just, it's just super visceral. Yep. Um, now the one trick to this is that we haven't mentioned yet is any dice that you roll on your skill number. So this isn't, um, uh, this isn't the typical like on or over is a success or on or under is a success. This is literally over or under is a success depending on what you're rolling. And then when you roll on your skill number, you can ask for an insight, which means you can ask. And this is the move in um, in like Dungeon World that is uh, uh, it's not spout lore, right? What is it? Uh, I can't believe I've forgotten the name of the move. But you you can ask the GM a question. Yeah. What what is what's here that's what is it not what it should be or something or what's not exactly right who's behind this or um what should i be on the lookout for uh what's really going on and you can ask these questions and after you hear the answer uh you can change your action and re-roll but those two things go together you don't just get a re-roll um you have to change you have to take the information you're given and do something different or you can't re-roll I try to be super clear about that because some people ask the question like, oh, I'm just going to re-roll. And I'm like, nope, no, you're not just going to re-roll. How are you approaching the problem differently now that you know? Because <laughs> yes. if you're not going to approach it differently, you got to stick with what you got, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. It's about mo- moving it on, isn't it? It's quite a few times you mentioned that m- moving moving the game on, moving. Yeah, so I'm a big fan of the moving the fiction on you know i i think the best answer to the can i try can i try you know it's like when somebody fails something and somebody else goes can i try and, and you you know the answer is no it's too late um yeah. <laughs> he failed at, at uh springing the the uh, lock on the chest and now the guards are coming after you you can hear them, their footsteps in the hallway and they're you know it's you you have, you have to make everything have uh you have to make the fictional time a little bit of a cost yeah yeah and actually uh this is, I'm going to, I got a window out here for a second. One thing I meant to say earlier when you were talking about it being a free game, I'd like to re- remind people that no game is really free. Um, and by that, I mean, you're investing time and um, attention, you know, understanding um, energy and building a group around it and everything so that, that you're spending you're spending something else to make this game happen. I'm just not uh, uh, putting a tax on that of actual dollars. A very good point, Ray. A very, very good point. I appreciate it when people pick up the game because I feel like they have bought it in a way, even if they don't like literally give me money. I feel like they're buying in right to the game. Yeah, I can totally understand that. I'm, I'm, I'm on board with you on that one, Ray. It, it's, mm-hmm. it is, re- it is rewarding to feel like your your efforts are getting put to use. So, well, I mean, I think you're you're asking people to try something, right? Um, and even though you've done it for them and there's kind of a, a gifting thing there where you 
put you put a lot of energy and time in it yourself. Um, and you sort of want to be acknowledged or respected for that. Um, you also have to understand that, you know, they're putting their time and energy into it. And so if it's a happy meeting, then that's the best of everything. Um, so just, but just back to the rules, there's really only three other things to talk about in the rules. One of them is assists, um, which is always a kind of a, a little bit of a sticky point with me. Um, I don't like to hear games where, um, assists are happening without any kind of fiction. There's a lot of times, and I mean, if you think in real life, uh, when you go to do something, I don't care if it's something that even is a, a two person job, like moving a couch. Um, it is harder to do it with two people a lot of times than it is to do it with one. <laughs> if you're, uh, maybe that's just me. No, but. no, no. I, I definitely agree with you, Ray. I, yeah. I'm a, I'm a big fan of doing stuff on my own quite often. Mm-hmm. And yes, I have moved a washer and dryer into a basement, um, by myself, by the way, that was my, who's your accent coming across. I think I said washer, um, <laughs> Uh, and I've moved couches by myself and things just because I realize that I get short with people, um, because I can't use my words effectively while I'm also physically laboring. And, you know, there's that kind of, so I, the whole point here is when somebody tries to help somebody else in the game, I want a solid explanation for how another person's hands in the, in the mix will actually help, um, or whatever it is they're doing. And then they make a roll, um, and again, it's either swords or sorcery, um, and it's just 1d6, and they succeed or they don't. Uh, but the trick I put on it here is if they succeed, it gives the, the player a die. If they fail, it takes away a die. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a risk to saying, like, I help. There's no just all upside kind of thing. And so people don't do it as much. <laughs> yeah, so you, you, you want to think carefully about what activities you're assisting with. So you you want to be pretty good if you're going to help, don't you? It's kind of not a not a decision to be taken lightly. You also want it to be a situation where you that you really need extra dice. Yeah, you know, you really need a, like a critical success or or to ensure success. And so that's when you you'd risk helping because it's super important. Mm. Um, you don't risk helping on something that's just kind of dumb. Uh, Although I don't know why you're rolling dice for something that that isn't that high stakes anyway. No, no, uh, no. So, <laughs> So there's two other things. Um, sorcery itself is a is a funny word in this game because it means both like the side of the die that's intuition and, and social and, um, you know, dealing with artifacts. But it also means real sorcery. And every character in the game can do something supernatural or superhuman if they want to. It's risky. Um, and you can only do it directly related to your calling or a magical item you possess, uh, which which would come through play anyway. That's not part of the original, you know, the rules is written. You don't get a magical item in character creation. Um, so uh, let's give an example of like a non, it's fairly easy to think of what an elementalist might do that's sorcery, but let's think about something like a barbarian, hmm. um, just a sword wielding, you know, big barbarian. Um, I'll put you on the spot first. I've got an idea, but what kind of sorcery could you imagine a barbarian barbarian doing? I, I imagine something quite feral Mm -hmm. does he does he tap into the the uh the wisdom of his ancestors or something like that right yeah exactly or his totem animal spirit yep yep or tribal tattoos that he activates or tribal Mm -hmm. tattoos is a good Mm -hmm. one right so um yeah so they can sort of make up their characters uh extras or or flavor or dash if you will by using these sorceries i've had assassins use like shadow magic right to have shadows Mm -hmm. bend around them um or uh, and and but the the deal with sorcery is this the first time you try it you are not an expert regardless of your calling you can spend time to prepare for it, but you're going to have to spend like what would amount to a whole turn, mm-hmm. you know, like you have to set it up in the fiction and say, so a barbarian might go, you know, like uh, while the fight starts, he might say, I'm holding back and like, um, you know, spending a moment to thank my ancestors for the chance to do battle and, and, you know, kind of talk about it that way while everybody else is rolling die. But then from then on, he gets uh, that extra die for being prepared. Right. Mm-hmm. So setting things up gives you the prepared die. And until you've done it once in the fiction um, and succeeded at it, you can't be an expert. And I usually do that session by session. So like uh, um, it depends if I'm running a con game, I'll let them be an expert, like in the last half of the second hour instead of the first, you know, yep. if they've tried that story before. But you kind of for me, it's a fiction building thing. They have to show it before they can know it. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah, I like it. I think I think it uh, is is it's a way to get some nice flavour in there with, without going crazy, mm-hmm. overpowered, sort of game ruining, crazy. So I kind of make the point, you can go big. Um, if the line in the rule says you can push for big effects, but keep in mind that any backlash will be equally dramatic. So uh, I let people, I let people go big if they want to, you know, there's nothing to say an elementalist, elementalist can't uh, um, take a, a local a, a campfire that's, you know, right next to him and turn it into a fireball, right? And try yeah, to scour yeah. a room fire. But um, if you fail that role, the blowback is going to be pretty horrendous. Yeah, so you're gonna you're gonna want to leave that for crucial moments. You're not going to be flicking it off like a cantrip here, there, and everywhere. It's a, sort of a a pivotal move in in the in the game. Yeah, and uh, but you know players shouldn't be afraid to be cool either. So that's <laughs> there's that. Uh, and then the, the final bit of rules that we haven't mentioned is to the death, um, which means in my mind is basically says you die only when it feels right to you. Mm. Now, this is a part of the rules that could probably, if I do an advanced version of it, I would, I might add a little to. Uh, but basically what it amounts to is when you fail as a character, um, the overlord can give you tags that matter in the fiction. Dazed, limping, bleeding, starving, chilled to the bone, those kind of things. And mm. you kind of, uh, as the GM, you can kind of lean on those things, right, to make uh, to make things harder for players. Um, but I tend to, there's kind of an unwritten rule that I tend to work on, which is three strikes and you're out. Uh, meaning if you've picked up, like when you pick up your third condition, you're kind of out of the action uh, okay. until, until you get a chance to recuperate or, or um, yeah, or you get captured or something like that. Yeah. And is that the kind of concept you're thinking you would expand? Would it be in the direction of the three strikes? I've thought I've also thought about having threats have uh, like a token stack that represents like how many times you have to be how many successes you need to get against them to eliminate them, um, which kind of helps uh, if you want to, you know. But the fiction always moves forward anyway. But you, you kind of want to know how long it lasts, right? So if you're in a big battle against a some evil necromancer, um, you can just decide as a GM like how long it's you know like okay, this, the excitement is, if I go any longer, it's not going to be exciting anymore. So let's wrap this up, right? Like mm-hmm. one big final thing. But um, if you want it, if you're a person that needs to know, like as an overlord, if you're the, or a game player, you need to know, um, you can put a stack of like poker chips next to you and go, okay, this is a five, five chip villain. Yeah. So, so you're introducing a kind of a clock idea. Yeah, a little bit, right? Like resources. And I would yeah. do the same to characters that like, you know, you maybe you start with three chips um, and then as you every time you quote unquote level up, you get one more chip. Um, and it means you can stay in fights longer. Hmm. Uh, right. But that that's, you know, a real simple add-on um, that isn't totally necessary, but may be helpful. Hmm. Um, the final, the the third section is uh, of the rules is about uh, generating an adventure and it's just a simple there's four, you roll 46 and read, uh, I like to roll all 46 at once and then kind of choose them. Um, so there's each table has six entries. There's uh, the beginning and it's where you begin uh, in a sprawling city at the door of a dungeon, deep in a steamy jungle. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a problem like uh, the people are enslaved or um, a powerful relic is unearthed, which is one of my favorites. Um, mm, I was just looking at that one. <laughs> <laughs> there's a threat. Um an ancient alien intelligence, a charismatic enchanter, a death machine. And there's a twist. Uh, the best solution is immoral or innocence stand in the way. So you take the dice and you assign them to each, uh, you, you know, you might have a one, three, let's say we have a one, three, two, and six. Okay. So if I read them in order, that would mean you begin at the door of the dungeon. Um, there's an invasion of monstrous creatures. One, three, four. And uh, behind it is an ancient alien intelligence. And, there's a, um, and in the twist is a secret and forbidden love. So, so we can imagine like, um, uh, the ruins underneath the city, um, suddenly blooming with like some sort of awful threat that's coming up from below. It's driven by an ancient intelligence. And what started it all was, um, was, um, that the princess has taken a demon lover and Mm. right. So there's, there's your adventure and you just get going. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's super clever. I love things mm. like that. It's deceptively simple, but it's re- it's really good kind of game juice right there. So I find it um 
I find it exhilarating and scary. It scares the hell out of you, but it's fun as a, as a GM to walk into a session, especially like at a con with strangers and roll the dice and start the adventure right there. It's, it's a little shocking. Yep. <laughs> it's like jumping, jumping into cold water. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I will say this, I'll take some time ahead of time and think about each one of the items in this list. Oh, okay. Yeah. So like, um, I have a, I have a couple different powerful relics that I like. Um, I have a couple different, you know, villains in mind for some of the threats. Um, like there's one, just the beast name dash people beast name in parentheses. So maybe I have a, I had one where um, I had sloth people. <laughs> uh, they were super slow, right? Yeah, obviously there was sloth. Yeah. Yeah, there was a war between a. Um, well, I don't want to get into games that I've had too much, but yeah, um, yeah. You just it's helpful to kind of have some ideas for each one of those, and so when you piece them, but you also have to be flexible, right? Because the combination will always suggest things. Do you find that when you approach a game like that without the prep? Do you find that that little bit of adrenaline pushes you to better performance as a as a referee? Sure, I, I mean it's high risk, high reward, right? Um, <laughs> so there's there's a risk there that it can also fail, but I I find it it does. The only thing that I've had to go had to go wrong um, in this game before and i i it's hard for me to think of it as going wrong i had a couple at one uh, at one gen con I, I used to run this at games on demand quite a bit and mm-hmm. um at one gen con i had a table it was late at night it was the last game of the con um for me and i had these two players they were from up in the pacific northwest area and and i just not remember that because they were talking about a con big bag con that goes on up there um they weren't they weren't great players they you know, the kind of players that pull out, they they were great players in a way. They were very inventive. And when it was their turn, they were really into it. When it wasn't their turn, they had their phones out. Right. Yeah. Um, and I, uh, I even said something at one point, but it just was one of those things. Well, um, we, we had this game where they started off on the shore of a great sea. Um, they were approaching um, a, a, a city, um, the, in the middle of like involved in some sort of, um, there was like uh, they were all gathered in a town square around this giant egg that had washed up out of the sea, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so we played this whole scenario where they found their way into the egg, and it was like it was actually a, a machine. It was a death machine, and like at the, at the center of it was this pool of like um, necromantic juice, if you will, like skulls and everything all swimming around in a, a gelatinous, like a nineteen seventies dessert pudding or something. <laughs> um, and um, <laughs> And, you know, there was this and I got all caught up in the explorative nature of it and the inventiveness of it and didn't push as much as I should have as a GM, like threateningly. They ended up, you know, like sort of activating the machine and, uh, you know, kind of the end of the adventure was that they basically they, they managed to work their way around the threats of the interior of this machine. That's where the threats were really was in the interior, like it could kill them if they did things wrong mm-hmm. um, and and to activate the machine. And, and, you know, afterwards, the guys were like these two guys stood up and basically did a debrief with me and like criticized my game. And it was kind of, um, it was kind of undirected criticism. It was just kind of like, well, I think you could, you know, and they were right about that. You could have pushed more, but you know, it was just kind of very, and I, it was really hard for me to take because they had been bad, bad social uh, players to begin with. And, but uh, that's a time when I think it didn't go as well. And I, I sort of worried about the experience of the other players who had uh, you know, ended and walked away. Everybody said they had fun, but, you know, it's one of those things you don't really know um, whether people are being polite or. Uh... It's, it's difficult getting good feedback on uh, on a session. I mean, the the mm-hmm. the, the roses in roses and thorns thing is is a really good idea. If, if you can get people that, it is. that want to engage with it and. and give you that honest feedback it's gold really because that's the only that's the way to get better yeah you you have to force people to do both right because the trick is there to say like okay it's okay because you're going to say one nice thing right and then you're going to say one thing that could be worked on right it's Mm. okay say your thorn right you have to make people say the thorn um yeah but mostly it's gone great um and even the games that i think weren't awesome have been good um i had one player argue with me for a long time after a game about that wizards should use um, swords, not sorcery. Like in meaning like it should be on the logic side of the thing. And I said, well, you're just paying attention to different fiction than I am. Like, like I get you. Um, there are, 
fantasy fiction there is fantasy fiction out there where spells are tied to um memorizing and mm. and intelligence and that they're logical formulae um right but that's not what this game is <laughs> no and it's funny you say that because i had this i had this question in my mind i actually asked you about mm-hmm. a similar thing and it's when you you miss out on as i'm reading it i i hadn't fully grasped that idea of sorcery that's what you've got to grasp haven't you the fact that it's like right it's not just magic and wizarding and it's not it's 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 not studying it's not studying is it it's it's kind of it comes from a, it's a dark and wild energy dark and wild. You, you, you might have to study to unlock it but uh but you know so i i tend to like push that argument into the prep die and what i mean by that is let's take the opposite end of the spectrum you're a barbarian and you're going to try to convince me as a player that um you're an expert at using swords in with the sorcery die meaning you attack from passion instead of cold logic mm-hmm. um and I would tell you that no, um, sword play is always about skill, but uh, and about knowing how to use a sword. But um, but your rage fuels that, right? So if you want to use your emotion to fuel your fighting, you can do that. But that means that you're going to take a moment to work yourself up, and that's going to be prepared. Not it doesn't change that you're rolling for sorcery. You're still rolling swords, but you're using your emotional side to prepare for it. Which is uh, which is clever because you still you you you're still sort of using that that the narrative of the barbarian and the barbarian trope. The player still gets mm-hmm. this player still gets a dice for that, but they they lose a turn yeah. preparing. I I think it's really important too because these fairly light games people can push. Uh, because they're so narrative, people can use uh, people who are really good at uh, fictional positioning and using narrative can basically argue their way into the best die roll every time if you let them. Mm-hmm. And um, I say if you let them, and I even hate that phrase because it sounds like it's a permissive thing. It's not that. It's that the game does have guidelines here. You just have to adhere to them. Uh, as a as an overlord, you kind of have to say like, you know, yeah, that might be true for some like base uh, source material, but in this one, you know, sorcery comes from a, a wild and un, un, you know, you're dealing with dark powers and it can go wrong and it, <laughs> you have to connect to them on an emotional level. And and when you do sword play, it's, it's a skill based thing. Right. Um, yeah. and you just have to kind of like, and I, I tend to name a bunch of uh, fictional sources and then ask, I try to get people around the table to kind of volunteer so that we're all like, we pick two or three sources between us that, that really resonate with as mm-hmm. many people as possible. So, you know, I draw from things like Elric and Thundar and um, Frazetta paintings and Pirates of the Dark Water, cart- like the cartoon and um, Henry Kuttner and, um, uh, you know, Liber, um, different, I, I might name different pieces of fiction, but you might name others, like you might name a video game or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and where we can find common ground is a good place to start from. I I actually keep thinking about He-Man to a certain extent. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, He-Man would be a great one. Yeah. I, I think that's one of the joys of the game is uh, I've had people play all kinds of different characters, um, characters that you would never see in a and d game or even in Dungeon World, right? Mm-hmm. That has yep. these, I don't want to say restrictive, but they are kind of restrictive, the playbooks, right? If you don't, yeah, if you yeah, want to yeah. different, you got to make up a new playbook. Um, I had a guy named, uh, oh gosh, I'm going to forget his actual name, but his character was Kor. He named him Kor, and he was this big golem, like a crystal golem, and he had a, a hollow chest with like a glowing ball in it, and that's why he was called a Kor. It was like, that was the core of him. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, at the start of the game, we didn't know what that did. Uh, so he, uh, one of his sorcery things was he could put things into the core and like uh, learn about them. But it was dangerous because he's basically ingesting them, right? Like putting yeah. them in his system. Uh, and um, I forget what else he did with it. But, you know, like those, that's a good example of a character. You're just not going to get that character anywhere else. No, no. And I love, I love this, this flexibility that you, you get with these types of games. I, I think mm-hmm. they're so fun. You just get a, a – you, you don't see it coming oh, yeah. either, do you? You sit down at the table no. and you probably think, what, what on earth's going to happen here? And then it all just kind of 
comes from surprise factor is awesome and that's that's i think one of the biggest lessons i took away from dungeon world was just to ask questions and use the answers kind of thing Mm -hmm. you know to go with the fiction that the players create um but to but more than that to back that up one step to ask them questions that get them to create fiction um so i've had some really wild i've talked about some negative games this i've had some really wild and crazy and memorable and great games with this system um, and, um, so I remember when I was specifically at Gen Con, one of the very first times I ran it, um, had a group of like six or seven people. Um, we sat down to play, uh, we started with a, a rolling necromantic pyramid on a plane, looking at it from an, uh, from a cliff and over, you know, like a, a bluff and it's moving really fast. And, and I said like, okay, you're mounted. What kind of mounts do you have? And everybody picked a mount and like the necromancer picked like this skeleton horse that was animated. <laughs> the barbarian was riding this, this war cat. And like, I mean, just like it got right from there. It was like, boom, we're out of the gate imagining and like getting into this world and immersing ourselves. And everybody gets to be very like invent something very personal, you know, mm-hmm. that makes it cool for them and it it played out so well so like there was a in the middle of that adventure i had this shaft that went up because they were trying to get up to like the capstone where this weird um i, I don't get into that this is sort of weird like uh imagine the alien in in the in the in the driver's seat of the movie alien when they find that dead alien in his seat right mm-hmm. this one's like a shrunken little living human being that was at the heart <laughs> of this pyramid, right in his find his walls of uh internet. well so this is a shaft uh, that goes up the center of the pyramid and I had it like an updraft going up through the shaft and there were like whirling uh, kind of blades in the shaft. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then later I added like gargoyles, like, like, uh, you know, some kind of threat in there, these weird things that flew around in the shaft and would attack them. And so like the guy with the cat, you know, his cat like basically jumps and like claws its way up, like jumping from side to side to run its way up the walls. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and like, that's a bit where he invented a bit of fiction then, and it really matters later in the story. And this game definitely rewards you for putting things into the fiction that are, that you, that you care about, you know, yeah. sorceries or, or, you know, other items. Yeah. It's, um, it's awesome. I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. I feel like we've, you've, you've given me a little bit of direction and some, some pointers as, as to what, perhaps should be considering going going forward to to run it is there anything else ray that you you think is important little bits of advice that you would pass on from from your experience of of playing it and and creating it as it were you know i i feel like i've said everything yeah i i don't know that there is uh I think being in the spirit of it is important uh, that you don't pre-plan too much, uh, that you recognize that it is a fiction that you're all building together. I mean, these are general pieces of advice that I give to anybody about most role-playing games, mm-hmm. but um, but this this more than most will blossom if you recognize it as a shared experience, um, not, not you're bringing a game to the table and the players are experiencing it. Uh, it's, it's where you're all experiencing it together and you're all going to get surprised and you're all going to come up with something cool to add to the story. And uh, you'll all be motivated to add something cool to the story, right? By the game itself, hopefully. Definitely. I'm thinking, um, I'm just thinking back to something you said near the beginning, and we haven't said much about the lexicon. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm wondering if maybe the right way to go would be to leave that to one side. I have a pocket mod version of the game that has a character sheet on the back and it doesn't have the lexicon at all. So it's like a little, um, it's one of those little uh, pocket mod is one of those you take, it's one side of one piece of paper that you print, but it has like eight panels and uh, some of them are upside down at first and you fold it into this little booklet. Um, and uh, it's a booklet that doesn't need staples or anything. So if you've never seen this format, it's kind of cute, mm. uh, but it, it requires either reading glasses or adult eyes most of the time. <laughs> um, but uh, the back page of it is a character sheet and uh, the rest of it is the the rules in brief, right? And there's no lexicon in that one. And yeah, I, I, I don't know whether the lexicon is the best thing. I think it's, if you wanted to have more of a, the lexicon's there, I think if you wanted to have more of a longer game, if you wanted to do 12 sessions in the same world, mm-hmm. Um, you know, as you go, it's almost like um, this would be the the notes of the group, like how scions work, if there are scions or, or, um, 
you know, what is, uh, how are we going to think about the word flashy or, you know, those kind of things. Um, I think maybe what might help in the lexicon is the terms expert. I, I define expert, prepared, risky, true sorcery, backlash. Those kind of things might be helpful in the lexicon. That's more like advice, but the rest of it is just talking about the styles and callings and that can be purely invented by players and probably should be. Yeah, I, I I'm I'm just looking through it now and thinking to myself, probably it would just be for me perhaps a little crutch if my mind went blank and somebody says, "Well, what are you thinking about this this beastmaster?" and and you know you know sometimes your your brain just deserts you. you you've got a paragraph there. You also have players, and I don't really know whether. I don't know what the right answer. I don't know if there is a right answer to this. So you 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 get a player at the table, somebody you don't really know, um, and they get the deer in the headlights thing, um, mm. where they see the word barbarian and they ask you, well, barbarian's not a good. I think most people understand barbarian. Um, mm. Let's choose a word like um, you know an alien or an alchemist, right? An alchemist. Let's go with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they say, well, what can an alchemist do? And you know, you, there's part of me that just wants to go, just look right back at him and go, I don't know, what can an alchemist do, right? Um, and and sometimes when you do that, they like, you see a little light go on in their head and you're like, oh, you mean I got to make it up? Yeah, it's like, yeah, cool. Um, but there's other people that kind of look at you clueless and I go, and that's the kind of people I go, uh, well, look at the back of the page for some ideas. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Look at the lexicon, it'll help you give me some ideas. Mm. But I like it better when they when they are immediately like if they're not drawn to the word to begin with, then I'm not really sure why they pick it. Now, having said that, I the one thing I haven't said is I will um, I like to do uh, a, a snake draft, what I call it when when you do style and calling, and that means you know you you have uh, maybe you just go around the table and you just pick somebody to start, okay, um, and they choose their style, uh, and so you, and then when the last person to choose a style, you reverse the direction, and then they choose a calling. So the last person to choose a style is the first person to choose a calling, and you go back around the table so that nobody has the same style and or calling. Uh, that's very good because that'll work well online because you can yes you can go around it because it would be difficult to get everybody making their characters up it's also helpful like i mean there's nothing to say that two people couldn't play a night and have very different nights um but sometimes in a especially in a pickup game it's better to just start them off by having some niche protection and have every give everybody their own little sandbox to invent in um you know as far as calling and style goes yeah i like that I'm- I'm gonna, I'm gonna actually write, write a note on that, Ray. <laughs> and I've never heard of a snake draft. Uh, that's what I call it. I'm not sure. I think that's one word for it, but it's just the idea that you know, we, um, I got into fantasy football for a while, okay. uh, and where you draft players, right? And yeah. that's the typical way you do it, is you know, because that way it's it's fairly even. Um, the guy who gets first pick doesn't get a pick again until like, you know, you have seven players. He's four, first and fourteenth pick, right? Yeah. But the guy who picks seventh gets seventh and eighth. So right. it, it tends to tends to work out pretty well. And I like leading with style that way too, because um I think people care more about calling than style. So the person who gets to go first feels all special, but then they pick the style and then all of a sudden they realize they're gonna go last at picking their calling. And it and it also stops people from putting together obvious combinations. So um like a furtive cut purse is fairly obvious. Mm-hmm. But if you choose furtive and then somebody else chooses cut purse on the way back, you're like, oh, crap, I have to be <laughs> a furtive, uh, a furtive beast master. Right. And then mm-hmm. you think, well, what does that mean? Well, then he's like a guy who's all into weasels and rats and like, you know, maybe he's a Pied Piper kind of character. Or um, are you going to be a lofty construct? What is that? What does that mean? You know, it makes yeah. it forces you to to come up with an idea that isn't an idea that you've already used in a game. Well, that made Something. me, I, I was thinking that, and that made me wonder and about the idea of randomizing it. Have you considered that? Or... Yeah, you could, you could. I've also thought about um, putting them, putting all the callings on a card and uh, putting all the styles on cards and then like dealing De- them, dealing out, them right? out, just putting them all in the center of the table and letting, and then letting people kind of like pick one at a time uh, so they could pick calling or style or whatever, you know, but 
yeah, there's different ways you could do it. But I think the important thing is to kind of keep people from being super linear with it and just going for something. Because the first thing you you sort of understand and know is going to mean you're going to play the game the same way you've always played it. And it's, you know, the game, I mean, like role-playing games. Like mm-hmm. Maybe you have a, maybe you have a standard character you do a lot. Um, I, I have some friends that are like that. I have one mm-hmm. friend, Paul, he's a great player. But, uh, you know, one of his things is he likes this old, he plays an old wizard who has a funny voice and um, is very, <laughs> you know, uh, very clever and yeah i mean and, and so this you know I, I, to to throw people off of their standard characters is kind of a good thing get them out of their comfort zone yeah yeah and and it helps because then they aren't trying to play a new game in the same way they've played other games right yeah, if they have yeah. to have a new character then that fits with a new game and i like your card idea right i'm tempted to write everything on on cards and it work would work really well online because you could just sort of like say okay carl you're next your card is you can hold it up and they can see it you know read it out <laughs> you can make a little deck and just have them draw from the deck yeah yeah there's hmm. a there's a card deck in roll 20 that works really well for that well i can assure you i won't be using it <laughs> <laughs> sorry yeah right that's a little technical i'm just doing i'm just doing google Meet. that's it <laughs> there you go well you write them on index cards with a big black Sharpie and hold them up to the camera. And that's every bit as exciting, probably more exciting than using some sort of electronic tool. And that is exactly what I was thinking to do. Sharpie on the index yep. cards. In fact, when we're finished, I will be doing exactly that. <laughs> I want, I just want to say thanks for um, you're taking the time to, to talk with me today and to let me go on and on about one of my own little twists or designs hacks i should say you know hack of another game but yeah yeah well um really enjoyed it right it was uh i mean you put out you, you put out a call did people want to talk about anything and it seemed the obvious thing for us to discuss and uh you know we we've talked a few times now and uh, it seems like it's been a little while uh mm-hmm. but we I, I always feel we we have have a good a good chat and always uh, finish up with the idea that there's probably loads more we could go on f- forever chatting absolutely yeah i appreciate you you're an easy talker and i'm an easy talker and it makes it it makes it really fun to spend an hour together yeah definitely definitely so um we, we we're done i guess right we've we've had a good chat um super super happy with that i've got some good takeaways gonna write up my cards make a couple of notes while it's fresh in my mind and uh looking forward to it yeah me too i can't wait to hear how the game comes out 